Acts 21 verse 27 through Acts 22 verse 22. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt? and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. All right, all right, all right. What's going on? We doing all right out there? Wow, you guys must be freaked out this morning. Uh, let me hear you again. You doing okay out there? Uh, it's, it's good to be with, with the people of God. If you're a guest, we're glad you're hanging out with us. Um, I know you walked in and saw these crazy signs and thought, what in the world is going on? So let me start by giving a disclaimer. Uh, these are not things that we believe, but they fit where we're going over the next several weeks. And uh, we just thought the shock value was worth it for you this morning to get to thinking about something that, that we need to acknowledge. Everybody loves offense. If you're a sports fan. You love offense. You love going to the ball game where the Cardinals hit like six home runs and they, they score a bunch of runs. And, you know, everybody loves that. Uh, people aren't crazy about the one nothing game. Uh, people love it on, in football. In fact, uh, when, when our, we had our beloved Rams here and they were uh, the Super Bowl contenders, uh, we still argue with anybody in the world that it was the greatest offense ever to play football. We love the fact that that offensive team could march down the field at will, Kurt Warner throwing balls, handing off to Marshall Falk, scoring touchdowns. They could just, uh, it didn't matter who, who they played against, they could go down the field and score on anybody at will. Uh, everybody loves that, but if you're a sports fan, you really learn to know that defense 
wins championships, right? You have to have that defense that, that, that um, uh, keeps the other team from scoring. And uh, in our history, if you, you were a fan of the NFL and the Rams, you will remember Mike Jones and the tackle on the one-yard line in the 2000 Super Bowl. It was defense that gave our city its moment of, of celebration and joy is one yard from the goal line, we stop, uh, the Rams stopped uh, the Titans and we went nuts, right? Uh, and so uh, everybody loves offense, but defense is a little bit harder. Well, what's happened for us, for, for the Christian faith in our cultures, the, the, to be honest with you, for most of our history in America, most of our history in like being a gospel presence, preaching Christ and planting churches and taking the gospel and just living out the implications of our faith in this culture, Christianity has been on the offense. We've been spreading Christianity around the world. In most places uh, in our culture, uh, you could be a Christian, and, and that meant you, people in the culture around you had a favorable view. Uh, they were positive towards your faith. They felt like the things that you were doing in our society were a good thing and not a bad thing. And there was a sense in which the culture in which the church lived in uh, allowed for people to be comfortable in the culture, to not struggle with persecution, and, and to have a, a high level of freedom to express thoughts and ideas of Christianity and even to spread that message around and, and to make that something that was just active in what we have done. But what's happened in our culture over the last few years, and has actually happened fairly quickly, is that we as Christians, when we are looking at the culture around us, are moving from offense to defense. We are no longer, like very quickly, no longer in a position where our ideas are being heard by the culture, where um, people who hold faith are being seen favorably. We feel like now people are coming out and all of a sudden uh, these sort of messages are everywhere and social media has just like, like made that faster. And, and the, the advance of cable news networks have made these messages like just a lot more hostile and people feeling a lot more comfortable just stating their opinions. And there's so much anger in our culture. And we feel the weight of that anger often turned towards our faith. That we, for a long time in America, in our culture, the church has been playing offense and all of a sudden we're playing defense. And the truth of the matter is, I don't think we are playing defense well. We as followers of Jesus are not figuring out how to navigate this space. Just some, some evidences of what I'm talking about. The first, uh, just the fact that, that the rise of people, like the, the massive and very fast rise of people who were disconnecting from church altogether. They called this the rise of the nuns. Uh, this is not that there are more women putting on habits and joining the Catholic Church. Uh, nuns here mean that when they check a box, when it says, what religion are you, they're checking none. And what's happened is that there has been this steady increase of the number of people who when asked what is their faith, what is their religion on a census form or something like that, they are more and more comfortable saying, listen, I don't have any spiritual beliefs or any religious heritage or background. Uh, I, I just am not engaged in that. And, and that has like what was, what's been happening over the last couple decades, but, but it like there was something that accelerated was the decline in church attendance. Fewer and fewer people going to church, feeling like their religious life was important to them, fewer and fewer people engaged. And what happened is that was, there was kind of a, an arc line where it was decreasing, and then something happened in our country that caused that arc line to go from just gradual to a like sudden drop-off, and that change was COVID. 
that a large percentage of people who claimed faith, who were involved in their church on some level or some way, shape, or form, when church shut down and everything kind of closed off, they just never came back. They just went, you know, I can do my life myself. I don't need this. And so we have more and more people in our culture who are just not engaged in religion, not engaged in church. They're forming their opinions and their values and attitudes uh, uh, without having the religious influence in their lives. You add to that the fact that um, we are losing, in some places, the battle in terms of the cultural narrative. So that it's becoming, like, there are more and more spaces and places because, like, when we hold to a biblical understanding of our identity and our world and things like that, there are more and more places where Christians, you, if you hold to things that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, we as Christians have affirmed certain things because the scripture is like crazy clear. If you hold those beliefs, the, the world no longer sees you as moral and good. The world is more and more seeing the church and Christians as immoral and the problem. And, and, and just, just add that, add to the fact that everybody's angry. And for so many of us, so many people who are claiming Christ, our response to this moment is to jump in at the anger and we end up in these crazy wars with ourselves. And so you see Twitter blowing up where two groups of people who are both Christians become very vitriol-filled, angry, and, and then they turn that anger back to the world in ways. And, and, and this is just kind of the world we live in. And all of a sudden what happened is we, the church was on offense. We, we could share the gospel. We felt comfortable comfortable in our culture, and now all of a sudden we're like being pushed against and we're in a culture and a world that is becoming more and more hostile, and I don't think we are dealing with that well. For some of us, we're getting angry, and some of us, some of us have just shown up, thrown up our hands and went, the answer to this is to not play anymore, just to get quiet and silent. I can't talk about my faith. I can't be real and authentic in who I am and what I believe as a follower of Jesus. And, and almost resigned ourselves to the fact that we're just going to lose. Yet we have a Savior who promised us that the gates of hell will not prevail, that the gospel will have its effect, and the church will triumph. So why am I raising this this morning? Because in our story and Acts, the story is changing. Uh, for the first 21 and a half chapters of Acts, the gospel has been on the offensive. It started from Jerusalem where Christianity blew up. And yes, there were moments of persecution, but I, even out of those moments of persecution, there's crazy stories of you know, people in prison being set free. And then they go out and they preach again right in the middle of city square. And we get to the gospel spreading to Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, the regions around it, and then to the ends of the earth. And we, we had this guy named Paul who was originally named Saul who hated Christians. You just heard his whole story read to you again, and, and, but Christ met him and saved him and rescued him. And for uh, like about nine chapters, 
We have been looking at Paul being the gospel globetrotter. He is playing offense. He is going from town to town to town, preaching Jesus, planting churches. Everywhere he goes, he gets beat up, but the gospel is advancing. We're playing offense, and and the Lord is rescuing and redeeming people. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Churches are being planted, and Paul will then go to the next time and do it over again. And the gospel is just spreading and advancing, spreading and advancing, spreading and advancing. And in all this journey, he takes three major missionary journeys, All of them have their moments where things are scary, but again, God seems to keep interceding for Paul, getting him out of situations where people are trying to kill him or throw him in prison. They're in the middle of the night, like he got thrown in jail one night, and he and his buddy are singing and singing songs and praising God and praying in jail, and earthquake, and the the doors are open, here comes Paul walking out. He just keeps preaching. And, and, And so far, there's just been this crazy success. Yet Paul felt like the Holy Spirit was telling him he must go back to the city he grew up in, the city of Jerusalem, the city where Christianity all started, where the first Christians, first people came to faith in Jesus, the very city where Jesus visited multiple times, the very city where uh, Jesus was crucified, and the city where Christ had risen again. And the church exploded. Tens of thousands of people came to faith in Jesus in Jerusalem, more than likely. Yet in the midst of this, there was always this Jewish religious crowd who had a certain religious worldview and way of seeing the world that, was a, that opposed the message of the gospel. They did not like the idea that somebody was telling them that they couldn't be saved by being good Jews. That they had to trust in this Messiah who they didn't really buy into because he wasn't the type of king they wanted. They wanted a king that would make Israel the great nation who would overthrow Rome. And the Jesus of Nazareth wasn't that kind of king. It's not the king we want. It's not the salvation we want. Therefore, we're not going to believe this. Now Paul is, about 30 years later after it all begins, feels the Holy Spirit calling him to go back to the city. And he goes back to Jerusalem. He is taking an offering. He's got a band of brothers who are traveling with him. And most of these guys who are traveling with him and hanging out with him are Gentiles. They're not Jewish. But they are people who have heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, are now growing their elders and leaders in their churches. And the Lord is blessed the ministry of Paul as he has crossed this crazy racial barrier with the gospel over and over and over again and planted churches that weren't just Jewish churches. They weren't just Gentile churches. They were churches where Jew and Gentile, people who would not associate in the culture, are doing faith and life and, and the gospel together, right? Now he's traveling with these Gentiles and he comes into, Rome, or into Jerusalem, comes back to his hometown with this offering that they have collected for the church in Jerusalem. And when he gets there, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, warns him, man, we're glad you're here, but your presence is going to be a little bit of a lightning rod. Because what's spread all through the city is that you are going around telling people that they can just blow off their Jewish heritage and faith. That they don't have to honor the temple and the law and all that kind of stuff. That's the rumor about you. And so here's what we need you to do. We need you to do something really Jewish. We need you to go to the temple and go through this Jewish purification rite. And so this is kind of the end of this third missionary journey. Now what Paul has actually written in the book of Romans, Paul said, here's my plan. I'm going to pe- keep playing offense. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, drop this offering off. And then I'm going to hop on a boat and I'm going to head to Rome. When I get to Rome, I'm going to preach gospel there. There was already a healthy, strong church in Rome. 
but he wanted Rome to keep sending him on missionary journeys. He wanted to go to Spain with the gospel. That was his plan. I'm going to keep playing offense. But what the Spirit has for Paul is for him to start playing defense. Because what happens is he, gets, he comes into Jerusalem and, and immediately he, like he obeys what James says. He goes to the temple to honor what <clears throat> James, who um, is kind of leading the Jerusalem church. So he's pastoring a, a congregation that's almost all Jewish. And he's wanting to see the church stay unified. He's wanting to see the gospel continue to advance in his city. And so he realizes that Paul could, could be divisive. And he's like, man, don't do that. And so Paul submits himself to James. And what you expect is Paul to go because he does the right thing. He listens to the voice of the Spirit. He honors the church. He fights for the unity of the church. Here's what we expect. We expect Paul to walk into the, to the temple pay the thing, maybe get harassed by a few people, maybe even get thrown in jail. But here's what's going to happen, right? Because we know this is how Christianity works, that there's going to be another angel, another earthquake, another open door. Paul's going to get free. He's going to hop on a boat and do what God wants him to do. He's going to keep playing offense. What happens, what we just read, the story we just read is the story of Paul going into the temple court, immediately having Jewish people who are Jewish by heritage and religion, but they're actually from uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia, the region around Ephesus, they oppose Paul there. Now they see him in Jerusalem in the temple, and they start hollering and screaming at people, here's the guy who's going to ruin Judaism. Here's the guy who's going to have everybody turn away from worship in the temple. Here's the guy who disregards Moses and is telling all the Jewish people they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the laws of Moses. Here's the guy who's going to destroy our faith and our nation. Forget any idea of overthrowing Rome and Israel being great. If this guy is allowed to live, it's going to go bad. We have to do something about it. And Jewish crowd comes and rushes on Paul, and they begin to, they are lynching him. Don't miss that in the text. They are, they have not shown, they're just going to rough him up and say, cut it out. They are going to off Paul. They are going to lynch Paul. And what happens is, is this is happening in, in the temple court. They actually push outside the temple into the temple court from this tower that is on one side of the um, temple that the Romans had built a fortress that was right next to the temple called the, the, the Antonia Fortress. And, and this fortress was the barracks. It was where uh, the, the Roman, uh, basically, police, uh, peacekeeping force, which was at least a thousand, couple thousand soldiers, Roman soldiers who were there to make sure there weren't insurrections, there weren't violence, there wasn't riots, there wasn't anything in Jerusalem. They are in this barracks, and there's a tower that oversaw the whole area that was the temple where Roman soldiers were always on guard when people were in there. They see from this barracks what's going on. They see this commotion and what's moving towards a mob violence moment. And so he comes down and tells this guy who is uh, the, the highest ranking official in the city of Jerusalem for the Roman government, this tribune, he tells him, uh, uh, that tells this, this guy, hey man, something crazy is going on in the, in the city. And they immediately send out a whole battalion of soldiers, uh, a peacekeeping force to keep peace by not doing peace into the city. These people are now beating up Paul. They're, they're roughing him up, okay? And, and, and they're trying to take his life. They want to beat him until he's dead. 
But what happens is when they see the Roman soldiers come into the space around them, the people are kind of like, all right, I'm out. I'm not going to get arrested for this. And they back away from Paul. And now here's Paul in a bloody heap, beaten so badly. The text tells us that first they put chains on him. Like we're going to chain up the guy who is getting beaten up, not the people who are beating him. And then we're going to arrest him. They actually arrest him first to protect him. But they realize something is going on here that is leading to a possible riot. And the one thing that can't happen in Rome, the Roman government, is we can't have riots. We're not having insurrections. We're not having riots. And so they, they put him in chains, and they bring him back to this tribune who is, like I said, he is the highest ranking person for the Roman government at this time. The, the governor, a guy named Felix at the time, actually would come to Jerusalem from time to time but his residence was on the coast in Caesarea, a town that Paul just visited. So he probably wasn't there. So this guy, this Roman leader of at least a thousand men, is now face to face with Paul. And Paul addresses him in his own language. He speaks to him in Greek. It's very interesting. Paul was multilingual, and, and he speaks to this Roman with respect in Greek. And the Roman goes, oh, you speak Greek. I think I know who you are. You're a terrorist. That's what he tells him. But we're told that to get there, Paul literally had to be carried by the, he was beaten so badly, he had to be carried there by the Roman soldiers. Now here's what we expect, okay? At this moment, an angel from heaven shackles off, Paul's free to go. What we have from this moment on is the fact that Paul is going to be in chains for four years. The book of Acts is going to end with Paul in chains. He is going to be speaking to individuals and crowds of people who have become openly hostile to him and the message and who have no interest in hearing what he has to say. They are going to make false accusations about him. There are going to be attempts on his life to assassinate him multiple times. And Paul is going to go over the next several chapters. And what happens, Luke, the author, pulls the emergency brake and slows the story down massively. And the, the gist of the, the, the end of Acts as we study it is going to be five defense speeches where Paul is given an opportunity in front of some group of people or an individual to make a defense for why he is so hated in his own culture. He's playing defense now. He is defending his faith in Jesus and, and, and defending what it looks like to stand in this culture that is now openly hostile with very few people who have high level of interest in what he has to say. And he is going to give us a model of what it looks like to be faithful. And, and, and the easiest way to say it is he, he is a guy who has unbelievably courageous conviction in the midst of a culture that sees him as is an enemy, sees him as uh, the problem, see him, sees him as the real uh, issue in their culture. And what we're going to see in this text and for the next several weeks 
is that this opposition, this growing hostility comes from two types of people. There are the religious crowd, the people who are, are like go to church, they, they, they attend worship, they're in the synagogue, they, go, they, they have come to Jerusalem to be in the temple, they have this really moral way of life, they are careful to keep all of God's laws, they read the Bible, and they are, they are, they are passionately religious about the way they see the world. And Paul is preaching the gospel, and when these people hear the gospel, what, what they are doing is they're going, now, now wait a minute, you're telling me that if I go to church, I say my prayers, I do all the good stuff that my religion commands, that I am still not acceptable to God? You're nuts, Paul. I am a good moral person. I, I keep the rules. I'm, I'm good folk, right? How could you look at me and say, I need a savior? And, and more important, they are angry because his understanding of Jesus, the kingdom, is not the version of a kingdom they want where the Jewish way of seeing the world becomes the dominant way of seeing the world around the globe. And Paul's preaching becomes offensive to them. They hate it, but there is also a more secular. So you have religious people. You also see this opposition coming from secular folk. The, the Romans here, who kind of represent a more secular worldview where the state is kind of king and they all worship the gods, but they worship Caesar ultimately and they believe that the Roman way of life and the Roman worldview is the one that's dominant. And now we're going to see growing hostility from the Roman government and from the Roman worldview, the Greco-Roman world towards Paul's message. And on one side, he's defending himself to the Jewish crowd, the religious folks. On another side, he is defending himself against the irreligious secular crowd of the Romans. And, and we're going to see Paul interacting with this. And this has always been true in church history. There has always been, as people are trying to preach and proclaim the true gospel of Jesus, plant churches and spread the gospel around the world. There have always, in some places, it's, it's a very religious crowd that creates the highest opposition. And so you have like Martin Luther, who, as he proclaims Christ, is... is uh, uh, thrown out of the church, has all this, like his life is in danger the whole time as he preaches Christ. And, and sometimes it is the religious crowd. Some of you, your story is that as you journeyed into the gospel, as you came to believe in Jesus, you came to realize that your only hope was in Christ in Christ alone, and not in your good works, not in your efforts, not in your religious system, not in the fact that you were baptized or you were brought into the faith or you attended this kind of church, that your, your only hope was in Jesus. As you moved towards that, you had family and friends and people who were part of your religious heritage who got very angry, frustrated with you, and in some cases, I know people who literally, their family said, if that's what you're going to do, you're not welcome anymore. This happens all around the world right now. We have Christians, brothers and sisters, who the religious folks who are super moral, super uh, ethical, who, who have a very strict and religious adherence are the greatest persecutors of our brothers and Christians around the world. In other places, it's, it's a more secular worldview that sees I'm my own person, I live my own life, and now the gospel is confronting that and calling me to repent, calling me to turn from certain sinful attitudes and actions and values, and, and the call in the gospel to do that has created people who, who see the world differently, and now they are going to stand against, and kind of in our culture right now, I think it's coming from both. I think there's places where, you know, even within the church, there are people who are claiming themselves Christians who are constantly just shooting other Christians. On the other hand, there is a growing hostility in the secular world around us. 
And what's happened is we in our culture have gone from offense to defense. And we're not doing it well. And I think what we have over the next several weeks are some great principles from Paul's story about what it looks like to play defense well, to honor Christ when the world world around us is a little more defensive, a little, little less interested in uh, uh, hearing what we have to say, but actually starts having some of the values that are represented up here. Believe it or not, there were others we kicked around that we were like, yeah, we can't put that on the sign and put in church because people would totally freak out, right? But we see it on the internet, we hear it on, 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 on social media, and even see it in places where even some, in some places our, our like courts are making decisions that are standing against our faith. What do we do? Now, for some of you, you're like, all right, I'm not experiencing this yet. I don't know what this looks like. I, like, for the most part, I, my neighbors and friends are, are okay with my faith, and that's great. Some of you guys, your work environment, your, 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 the places where you hang out, even some friendships, you have been told, like, you can't talk about this here, and you must give in to certain values and attitudes in our culture. And I think Paul helps us so much here. In verse 1, look at verse 1 again. Grab your Bible, look at verse 1. And what he says in verse 1. What we're told is at this moment, Paul turning to the Jewish crowd. So this first offense is primarily towards the Jewish crowd. People that he grew up knowing, people that he grew up loving, that he, the people he was. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. You hear that? Paul's playing defense. The word, the word defense here is the Greek word apologia, okay? It is a Greek word. We get our word apology from, but this is not Paul saying, let me apologize to you for, right? that's not what the word means in this language. In this language, uh, it's a word that means to make a defense towards somebody who is against you. Uh, it is to make a defense. Sometimes in a court, uh, you would stand up and, and make a defense to argue your, uh, or have, hopefully have a lawyer who would argue uh, that you are not guilty of whatever you're being charged to make a defense. In, in another way, it is, it is a way of defending the faith, defending your beliefs and your understanding of the gospel to the culture around you. Here's what Paul is doing. He is making a defense for the gospel to the culture around him. Uh, we get our word, if you've ever heard it, apologetics from this word, uh, from the, this Greek word. And apologetics is kind of an aspect of theological study in our world where we're trying to give it reasoned defenses for the biggest objections to Christian faith in our culture. And there are some amazing writers over the years who have been great apologists. People like C.S. Lewis, people like Tim Keller. Right now, my favorite author is a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. She's written multiple books, making defenses against the strongest arguments that come from our culture, from people who say, we don't believe in Jesus, we don't like Christians, and she is trying to give a reasoned, loving, humble defense for the gospel. And I would tell you that this is a good place where all of us need to learn. This is how we learn to play defense. We learn how to stand in our faith and know what we believe and be able to articulate it. But Paul here is making a defense. And so he is going to stand in front of this crowd. And what we see over the next multiple verses is Paul telling his faith story in such a way that he is identifying with the Jewish people and he is humble and, and, and gracious to them while he makes a defense for the gospel. And, and there's a beautiful, some beautiful things in here about what Paul does. But let me start by just pointing out what Paul does not do. 
I, I want you to notice what Paul does not do. First of all, he doesn't go silent. He's dragged up this steps, being carried by Roman soldiers from a crowd who just tried to kill him. It would have been like, we'd have been like, just been like, all right, Paul, it's cool. Don't say anything. Let them suffer the fate they're going to. Don't turn and do anything. But he doesn't go silent. This is for a lot of us where we need to wrestle with this because our response as we are now in this moment is to go, I can't say anything. I'm terrified. And I get that. I totally, like, the Spirit of God totally understands this. We, we know the, the tension and the struggle, yet we cannot be silent in this moment. But also notice that he doesn't go defiant. Paul is a prophet of God. If it was me, I'd have said, let me speak to these people. And I'd have gone all Jeremiah on them. The Lord is going to rain fire and brimstone. You are going to suffer eternal damnation. Hell for you. Like, I'd have, I'd have been like, all right, you mess with me. Here we go. You want the bull? You get the horns. Let's do it, right? I'd have been like, bone my neck. I'm going to let you know who you are. God's going to, like, and, and Paul doesn't do that. One of our struggles in this moment is that we gotta figure out who our models are in a culture that everybody's angry about everything. It's not just Christianity. Everybody's angry about everything. We just throw the word woke and see what happens. Everybody's angry about everything. And let me lovingly tell you with as much humility and grace as I can, that if our models for cultural engagement are not Jesus and Paul, and they are Twitter warriors and Joe Rogan, we might have a problem. We might have a problem. If anybody is justified to go all atomic nuclear option at this moment, it's Paul. It is not what he does or what he ever does, and it's never really what Jesus does. There's a humble, loving engagement that we're going to hit in a minute. He doesn't go defiant. He also doesn't go defensive. What's interesting is the basic charge brought against Paul is that he was defiling the temple, speaking evil against the temple, speaking evil against Moses and telling Jewish people not to follow the laws of Moses and that he had brought a Gentile into the temple court. Now, if, if, again, if you turn around, if that's the charge against you, you would expect Paul's defense being to bring the facts of the case forward to refute the claim. Yet he, he doesn't defend himself. What we see is clarity about Jesus as he tells his story. He's not really guilty of any of those charges. He, what he is guilty of is, is taking the gospel to Gentiles and telling Gentiles you don't have to keep the law. But when he himself enters into the space of, of Judaism, he is an adherent, like he is faithful to the religious system he grew up in. He just doesn't think it saves him. He knows it's a way to honor God because the Old Testament told him. And he didn't bring this, this Gentile into the temple, even though the whole Old Testament is testifying to us that Jerusalem and the temple was supposed to be a light to the nations. 
Yet he didn't violate their rules, but he's accused of that. But he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't just all of a sudden try to defend himself and make the world know that he's righteous. And, and It's not where he goes. And we just need to be careful to understand that, you know, when we start hearing these accusations, what we want to do is we want to come at our culture like this, going, hey, what you're saying about me is false, and I'm not going to let you get away with it. And there's a graciousness here to Paul that I think we need to see. And the last thing he doesn't do is he doesn't engage compromise. In other words, while he is careful about the way he engages, he does not give up the centrality of the gospel, his convictions about who Jesus is, his understanding of grace. Here's what happens in every culture in history. Let me say this clearly. Every culture in history There will be issues in that culture. There will be issues in that culture where the culture will look at people of faith, people who believe in Jesus, who hold to the gospel, and they will say, if you're going to fit in, if you're going to belong, if you're going to live in this culture, you can't believe that. At least you can't believe it publicly. And if you do, we're not accepting you. We're not new here. It's always been part of the church's history. And always there have been some in the church who got defensive and hostile against the world. But there have been others who just tried to bake into their faith the culture's worldview. Let's just mix it together and come up with something where now the culture will accept us because we... We believe this. When, when I was younger in my education, I had all kinds of people who were telling me, you can believe in Jesus, just don't, I mean, the, the whole God thing and all that kind of stuff. We don't care what you believe about God. Just understand that we know because of science how the world was created and we don't need God anymore. And if you're going to fit in, you can't believe in miracles. You can't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. You can't believe that Jonah really got swallowed by a a great sea creature. Like, if you believe those things, you're just way out of step with culture. We know that miracles don't happen. Therefore, if you believe that, you're just nuts. And that was kind of the worldview that was going on around me in my educational framework. It even showed up, believe it or not, in my seminary training as I had religious professors who had just caved in and given over their belief system to what the culture was saying? Believe it or not, that has come and gone. The church still proclaims. And now it's a totally different set of issues. It's it's issues around ethics and identity, about who we are as people. It's issues of of, uh, that the Bible has taught us, like staying true to, to what the Bible has taught us about sexuality and marriage and things like that. And we're being told, listen, in our culture right now, you have to give that up if you're gonna come to the public square. And a lot of people are just giving in. Other people are getting angry. Paul helps us to see that the proper response is, is not to compromise, it's not to get angry, it's not to fight, it's to give a humble, loving defense through our lives and our lips of the beauty of the gospel. This is what convictional courage looks like. And what I want to do is just real quick, I just want to point out three things real fast about what Paul does. So I've told you what he didn't do, let's look at what he does and kind of point out three um, beautiful things about Paul's Witness in this story that should give us a model to follow. And in all these, he looks very much like Jesus, who 
engage the cults around him in the same way. Three things as he is now playing defense and he is just giving a defense in this amazing story. And the first uh, thing we see in Paul is his compassion. His compassion for the people that he's speaking to. We see Paul not becoming angry. These people just beat him up. Bloody. They tried to lynch him. They tried to murder him. He is, has to be carried up by these people. And when he gets on top of the steps and he gets permission to speak to them, he does not turn and become confrontive or combative. In fact, look at the first two words in verse 1. Brothers and fathers. He is saying that to the people who just did this to them. He, he is treating them with compassion. He, he speaks to them in Hebrew, the negative language of the, the Jewish people at this point in time, and he has a conversation with them that is grace-filled. He, 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 he sees them and understands what is at stake, and he's careful about even how he uses language here. Instead of coming at angry people with anger, he comes at angry people with compassion, with respect, with grace. He does the same thing to the Roman tribunal. This is a guy who um, is, had participated in some ways in the beating by taking bloody hands and bloody legs and throwing chains on him and then dragging him up a flight of stairs. And, and, and you know, I can't imagine these Roman soldiers were like sweet and gentle with him as they drag him up this, these stairs to this, this fortress. And as he gets there, he begins to talk to him. He says, hey, hey, um, you speak Greek. The, 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 this Roman ruler looks at Paul and says, you speak Greek. He was kind of shocked that this Middle Eastern Jewish guy spoke Greek to him. And he's like, well, yeah, of course. And, and the guy goes, I know who you are. You're that Egyptian that read that in, led that insurrection with the Sakari. It's a very interesting moment. A couple things about this real quick. A little bit of a sidebar. It's a very interesting moment in the Bible because, first of all, we know that this guy is referring to something that actually happened in history. Josephus, actually, the history, ancient history in Josephus tells us this story. What we have is another proof of the beautiful accuracy of Luke in recording the events, where this Egyptian came towards Jerusalem and he got, gathered this band of, of mercenaries that were called the Sakari. The Sakari was a name given to a, a Jewish zealots who would murder and, and, and you know, like, like they were just terrorists. Um, in fact, the name comes from the type of dagger they would use. It was a type of dagger that had these clips that kind of came through their fingers, and they could put the dagger down here. And they knew how to slip into a crowd and just pull that dagger through the ribs of somebody who was a Roman sympathizer. And now they are like, they're just, they're murderers who are using terror to, to scare people. And this group, this Egyptian led this huge throng, thousands of people on this insurrection but the Roman governor at the time, Felix, actually sent a huge squadron of soldiers in. Uh, they killed a bunch of these guys, but the Egyptian and several other people got away. And now this guy is going, you're that guy. You're a terrorist. And Paul, even in this moment, his response by speaking Greek, by honoring who this guy is, by speaking to him with respect is showing the type of compassion and grace and love even for that person. Why does Paul do this? Well, he told us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Listen to what he says. He says, listen, to the Jew I became a Jew in order that with the, to the Jews, uh, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, 
that I might win those under the law, to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here's what what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians that we're seeing in action. He's saying, listen, when I'm with these people, I know they need Jesus, and I'm going to love them in the love of Christ, and therefore I'm going to lay aside some of my rights and some of the things that I I know that I can or can't do in order to love them, and I'm going to treat them with respect because my goal is to see them love Jesus and know him. And if I'm with people who don't believe in religion at all, I'm not going to get all uptight about the fact that the way they live their lives looks a lot different than the way I live my life. Um, their convictions, their ethics, their values, their, their, their lifestyle, it may look drastically different. And I don't go join in in what they do, but I, I still can be with them and be gracious and treat these people with compassion. Why? Because I know that they need Jesus and my goal is for them to meet Christ. He, he is demonstrating what he has said of showing compassion to these people, this compassion where that realizes that your staunchest enemy, somebody carrying one of these signs, is not an enemy that we are given freedom to despise and hate, that in the gospel, in Christ, we must have compassion. Listen, you never lock eyes with a person who was not created in the image of Christ and who is not who was a person who Jesus did not die for. We do not have permission to engage the culture with vitriol and hatred. We must stand firm in certain things but we must come with compassion because the worst person in the world deserves our love because Christ died for us and died for them. Jesus came to save sinners. And our posture, our defense, when it turns angry, when it turns hostile back, ends up hurting the cause of Christ deeply. What we need in the church right now are people who will play defense, love Jesus, stand for the gospel well, but do it with the posture that looks like Peter, Paul, Jesus. Jesus look, keeps looking on the crowd, and we keep telling him that he had compassion on them. He loved them. And so, so there's that. Second thing is humility. I could unpack a lot of things, but let me just make this simple. Paul makes his defense and his story. He tells his faith story. Paul could have stood up and go, hey, I'm a Pharisee but I'm also this apostle of God. Let me tell you who I am, boys. But he tells his faith story. He tells the story of how he came to faith in Jesus, the whole meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, in such a way that what he does is he gets into the, the skin. He gets into the story. He's like, literally, he, like if you read this all the way through, what you see is Paul going, hey, I get it. I'm here preaching Jesus. You beat me up. You think I don't get this? I was this. This was my story, right? I, I was a Jew of Jew. I, I studied under Gamaliel, meaning he was like in, in the Ivy League, you know, uh, of, of study of, the, of uh, the Jewish religion and, and faith. He was a Pharisee. But he said, not only that, man, I became the bag man. I became the hit man for the Sanhedrin. I was the one who would carry out their wishes and justice. I was arresting Christians. I was beating them up. I was standing over Stephen when they were killing him. Like, 
This is who I was. I really like you. I believed firmly, I believed firmly that the way to defend the person of God is by putting down infidels. And I did it and I was really good at it. I, I, I am just like you until I met Jesus. Until I met Jesus. And he changed just a simple story. Our, our culture is very story-driven right now, I will tell you, and we're going to come back to this idea later in another sermon, but your story is maybe the greatest way of engaging the culture, and so I would just challenge you that your testimony, a, a testimony is your story where Jesus is the hero. That's all it is. Tell your story where Jesus is the hero, but it, it, it comes from a heart where Paul is, is understanding that but by the grace of God, there go I. He sees himself clearly knowing that if Christ hadn't saved him, he'd be in the crowd doing this to somebody else. It was the gospel in Jesus who changed him. The third thing that we get here is clarity. We get from Paul clarity. And uh, basically, while Paul is here and he is compassionate and he is humble, Humility does not mean for Paul that he doesn't know what he has to present and he doesn't do it well with clarity. He is uber clear on the stakes here. He knows that if he doesn't turn and speak to this crowd with a moment that he has, if he doesn't share Jesus and, and share the beauty of the gospel with them, that like, their acts in their religious worldview is setting their eternity. He knows the stakes. He knows, uh, he has clarity about the stakes. He also has clarity about the fact that there are misconceptions. He's, he's accused of all kinds of things. None of them are true. He's accused of being a terrorist. He's accused of, of violating the temple, of bringing a gentle, like all these things are true. And what we see is Paul very carefully letting them know that the misconceptions about him and about faith in Jesus are not correct. Now, I'm pausing here just for a second to tell you this, that one of the biggest challenges of our standing in this moment in culture is that so many people who have left the church and who are banning the church and who don't even believe in Jesus, it's not that they're rejecting Jesus. There are so many people in our culture, what they're rejecting is a version, different versions of Christianity that are offensive that a lot of times don't look like Jesus. And one of the challenges that when I'm having conversations, whether it's with students, when I teach at MOBAP or people that I have conversations with, is that I am constantly having to deconstruct the version of Christianity that they think is real Christianity. And explain to them that, listen, real, real Christianity doesn't always look this way. And reminding them that the place where you find authenticity is by looking at who Jesus is. It's okay to somebody say, I don't believe in your faith. And you go, well, what is it that you think we believe? Well, you hate these people and you. It's okay to let go. I get it. I understand that there are people who claim the name of Jesus who behave that way. I'm sorry for that. It's okay to clear up misconceptions and be gentle about that. Uh, he's also clear about the center. He preaches Christ. In fact, I love, he, in verses 14 and 15, he talks about Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's a title that comes from the Old Testament that is 
part of the whole problem of the law. The law keeps saying, here's how you must live if you're going to honor Christ. And then we start looking at everybody in the Old Testament, and nobody does it. And it, the, the Old Testament keeps, keeps saying, to the righteous one, you will have, be blessed. To the righteous one, you will do this. But then you start reading the Bible and go, where's the righteous one? And they never show up. Every person in the Old Testament is awful in some way, shape, or form, right? And then it becomes a title that, that the, the, the prophets start saying that they are looking for the righteous one. And Paul is just looking at them going, you, you believe the law, that's good. Who's keeping it? Where's the righteous one? I know him. He uses their own ideas and understanding to point them to Jesus, to say that Christ is the hope. He also is very clear about the implications. That there are defeater beliefs, and in this culture, the defeater belief is we don't believe the Gentiles belong anywhere near the kingdom of God. And Paul goes, it's the very gospel that has sent me to the Gentiles. This is where the conversation ends. They, they are like, nope, none of that. Yet he's not afraid to say, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of the nations, and he sent me. Now, there are all kinds of things in our culture, things like, uh, um, like I said, you know, the, the way the scientific world sees things, there are things like what we prayed for as it comes to, to, to loving justice and caring for the broken and poor, of stepping into spaces like issues of racism, things like that, where the gospel compels us to, to love people and do that, that both religious and irreligious people look at us and start yelling at us when you step into that space, yet we need to be clear about the implications and the beauty of the gospel and to go forward with that. That's what it looks like to play defense. The uh, 1999-2000 Rams won the Super Bowl with, with the tackle. What happened the next year is that as our band comes forward, we're going to worship Jesus here in just a second. What happened the next year is that the Rams uh, lost their head coach. and They got Mike Martz, crazy mad Mike is what they called him, who was an offensive genius. Several of the defensive players uh, were at the end of their contracts and left, and the Rams went, ah, we don't care. We can outscore everybody and what happened that next year was really interesting if you were a football fan. And I promise I won't use sports illustrations. Everybody who tuned me out because of sports illustrations, I'll do something else next week, all right? But for this time, here's the illustration. Uh, the, the, the Rams came back the next year, and everybody thought, Super Bowl again. They're undefeatable. And what happened the next year is that every football game was like a track meet, where the Rams would score and the other team would score. Rams was, but they couldn't stop anybody. And it was awful because it was a team who knew how to play offense. They had no idea how to play defense. And, and sadly, in our culture, in our context, I think that's what's happening with us. All of a sudden, we're, we're in a culture where this, these arguments are actually winning. And what we need to learn is, is how to have clarity about our convictions, humility about the fact that apart from Christ, I'd be right where you are, and see the beauty of the gospel in our lives. And then in crazy, crazy compassion, for people who differ from us. Not getting sucked into the anger of the world, but being drawn by the beauty of Christ to live different lives. And when we stand there like Paul does, God will use that greatly to show the beauty of Jesus. That's who we want to be. Amen? And so if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the call. If you're not, 
I present you Jesus, the righteous one. I'm telling you that Christianity, Jesus, is so true and so beautiful and so worth it. And if you're not sure, let's have a cup of coffee and a conversation. If you have questions, we will have people down here at the end of our service who would love to have a dialogue with you about what that looks like and who Jesus is. And we'd love to just talk to you about this. But what we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand together, and we're going to sing to the one, to the righteous one, the one who is worthy of our praise. We're going to remind ourselves of the beauty of this truth so that we can leave here ready to be what salt and light, like the gospel calls us to be, to live our faith in the world tomorrow, knowing that Jesus rules our, our lives today, okay? And uh, so I'm just going to invite you to sing and, and celebrate and worship Jesus. But if you need prayer, if you're struggling, or if you have questions, please stop and have a conversation either over here. I'll be over here at the end of service either way. Uh, so I'll pray and let's, let's do that. Lord, we love you and praise you. And I just thank you for the opportunity to preach Christ this morning and remind us, remind our church through this testimony of Paul that we can, we can step into our moment without fear, even though the culture may not like what we have to say, we can look like Jesus and, and, and live our convictions in a way that honors you. Help us figure out how to do that and navigate that well. We love you, Lord. Let us lift up our voices and sing to the one who saved us like you saved Paul. In your name I pray, amen.